But to what will I compare this generation? Jesus asks. This generation, that generation, my generation, and your generation. Maybe their generation. 741 days ago, Allison, Camden, and I packed up all of our belongings. We packed up all of Camden's toys, all of Allison's artwork, and all of my Weber grills. And we put them into a moving truck. And we thought that we were leaving the D.C. area for good. We left the Beltway banter and bickering. We left the partisan divides that run deeper than some of the biggest holes young preachers often dig themselves into. We left what was at times arguments that were just downright nasty and mean. We packed up our dearest possessions, being sure, though, to leave room in the car for Rosie Penelope, our barely 18-pound beagle, and we headed south. It wasn't soon, though, after we arrived in Chesapeake that we quickly realized and learned that the Tidewater, Hampton Roads area of Virginia is not unlike Northern Virginia. Yes, we learned that Chesapeake is, in fact, the third most boring city in America. I have a footnote to prove that. But we also realized that we were trading in the Beltway banter and bickering for backhanded Southern compliments. Oh, bless their hearts. We, we also learned, though, that those deep partisan divides ran all the way down I-95 across I-64 and landed right in our new home. Far away from what our new church family referred to as the crazy D.C. life. We learned quickly that that crazy D.C. life was not just isolated to D.C. Now, don't get me wrong. Allison, Camden, and I loved living in Chesapeake. And why wouldn't we, though? We were a a short drive from the beach, maybe 20 minutes. Frankly, Allison and I were doing pretty well professionally. Camden was in an awesome preschool. But still, it seemed like something had followed us. This generation, that generation, living here living there, did anything at all really change? Yes, we moved to a new house. We made new friends. Camden did really, really well in school. And Rosie Penelope the Beagle had a backyard of her own to play in. But the climate of unhappiness and unthankfulness, the atmosphere of more is more and I'm right, and there's no way that you'll ever be right, still weighed heavy on the day-to-day routines of our lives there, of everyone's lives. What we learned, what we learned 741 days ago, is that the human spirit is not easily, if ever, satisfied. And if you don't believe me, we can look at our scripture today. We can look at John the baptizer. 
He was a holy man. He did everything by the book. He was ushering in the reign of God, preparing the way for the Messiah. And still, John was called demon-possessed. Even when we do everything by the book, the book of living a happy life that typically makes the New York Times bestsellers list, we often, we come up short. We will wait in line for hours. We will set alarms so that we get the newest devices, so that we can buy tickets for the next sellout event, only to become unimpressed or bored, unhappy, missing out on the joy that we thought was going to come from those things. We will meet new friends, oftentimes here at church, And we begin quickly, though, comparing our stuff to their stuff, realizing we think that they have found the secret to living that happy life that we read about on that New York Times bestseller. And then we immediately, we have to act. We are not ever easily satisfied. I learned, and I think that I had always known this, but it was wishful thinking, that no matter where you go, either generation to generation or geographic location to location, there will be times when we simply refuse to see the opposition as having anything of value to say. We refuse to see people beyond their ideologies, their political beliefs, and that's to say nothing of their theology. But let's, let's go a step further this morning. Even when we live that happy life that was outlined in whatever book or internet article that we've most recently read, we find that because we have found happiness in this specific way, the people living that way must be wrong, and therefore they must assimilate. They must assimilate into our way of living or else. Or else they become the villain of our happy life. They become possessed by demons, and we believe that they are the drunkards. Does this challenge us at all? Why are we so unhappy? What is so wrong that we cannot view someone that thinks differently from us as a beloved child of God? As someone who has lungs filled with divine breath. The same divine breath, mind you, that was breathed into each of us. And who was uniquely created by the same creator that created us. Why can't we live with the childlike joy that so many of our children live with? The joy that we used to live with. The joy that our kids, my Camden lives with every day. Have you ever noticed that our children are happiest when we as parents or grandparents, aunts, uncles, or maybe family friends are offering them a gift? Or better yet, if you have a teenager, you know this all too well. When we take a burden, a chore a responsibility off the shoulders of our child. 
Prior to being in ministry, I traveled a lot in a private sector job. And every time I would return from a trip, every time without fail, Camden would greet me at the door, no matter what time my flight arrived. He would throw his arms around my shoulders and say to me, thank you, Daddy, for coming home. Or now when I get home late from a church meeting, I'll go in to Camden's room to tuck him in and he'll be pretending that he's asleep or hiding under the covers. Then he'll grab me by my shirt collar and pull me in for a hug, smiling from ear to ear saying, I knew you would come home, Daddy. I knew you would tuck me in. These childlike responses are no different than what Jesus is talking to us about in verse 17. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not mourn. Or to put it this way, there were opportunities to have fun and live as part of a community. But you were too busy with your agenda and your dissatisfaction. Well, dear, some of you might be thinking, we've been out in the real world. We know how bad it is out there. Our childlike wonder disappeared with our childhood as we grew up and we learned to see the world for what it truly is. I will concede here that some of that statement is true. Yes, there is evil in the world. Evil so vile and repugnant that it makes the best of us throw our hands in the air, looking to the heavens and shouting, Hey God, how about a little help down here? Can I get a little help? Sure. Jesus, God incarnate, came into our world taking on human flesh. Jesus walked the earth had friends, ministered to countless people, was killed, rose from the dead, and then ascended to the Father. God did all of those things. So when we are looking up to the heavens, bellowing out that all seems lost, that there is no more hope, we have Jesus who offers his yoke to us. God is reaching out, reaching down from the heavens, offering us the help that we so much say we need. To receive this yoke, though, to have God, Jesus, walking alongside of us requires that we look at our community around us just as our children look at the world, viewing the world full of hope and thankfulness. Imagine, just for a moment, how dramatically things would change in our own lives. If we, as disciples of the risen and ascended Christ, looked at the world with a view that was made possible by the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, even more, how would that attitude change our world? I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to the infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Living thankful lives, not lives of despair or banter and 
bickering. But thankful lives lead us then to living into a constant state of prayer. John Wesley said it this way. Thanksgiving is inseparable from true prayer. It is almost essentially connected with it. One who always prays is either giving praise, whether in ease of pain, both for prosperity and for the greatest adversity. He blesses God for all things, looks on them as coming from God, and receives them for God's sake. Not choosing nor refusing, liking or disliking anything, but only as it is agreeable or disagreeable to God's perfect will. Even when we pray for our greatest adversities, whether that be in a person, an issue that's happening right now, or a personal family situation, we are presented with the opportunity to be thankful for to be thankful to God when we go to God in prayer. Is this not what Paul meant when he told us to pray without ceasing? And when we do this, can we rise above every generation, every generation that's gone before us, rise above everything they have gone through and truly live a life of thankfulness? Prayer is a way for us to yoke ourselves along Christ. The Son of God is offering to come alongside us to share the load so that we can keep moving forward. We can keep moving forward being fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, sisters and brothers, friends and neighbors. And as people who have committed to living lives together, living as a witness to the resurrected Christ. All of this, though, all of this, though, is countercultural to what we are told every day. A life of prayerful thanksgiving is contrary to what you and I read about in those New York Times bestsellers. Instead of being thankful, we often live in fear. Living in a fear that not only cripples us, but then leads us to a state of unwillingness. An unwillingness to see one another as divinely created beings. The beings that we all are. We are living in this mindset, are we not, right now in the United Methodist Church? Not a mindset of prayerful thanksgiving, but instead becoming fearful of the other side as we seek ways to live as a global denomination. This attitude of fear often is the topic of conversation in church meetings, conversations with fellow clergy, and even church friends. Attitudes of fear paralyze us, while an attitude of prayer, an attitude of prayer that keeps us yoked to Jesus, alongside Jesus, keeps us moving forward. Thankful prayer doesn't just give us the opportunity to possibly move forward. No, an attitude of prayer keeps us moving forward, even while we feel like, and it seems like, there's no way forward at all. The beauty of this is we only need to yoke ourselves alongside Jesus. 
His yoke is not a burden, and discipleship is not a heavy thing. Our life, in all of its complexities, the burden and the fear, is now in God. So maybe the only way Jesus' yoke feels light, because let's be honest, forgiving someone seven times, 70 times, really is not easy at all. Maybe it's knowing that by grace and by grace alone that we are incorporated into God through Christ Jesus. In other words, while the yoke of Jesus seems light and easy to carry, it's not. But because our own failings, fears, and bickering are part of our story, and because of Jesus, our story is enfolded into God's story, the yoke is a relief, a rest provided to us by God. Yoked with Jesus, we do not have to carry the heavy burdens that generations before us carried. Jesus is truly offering us a new way. The burden once carried is now replaced by grace. Rather than a laundry list of things we have to worry about, a list of things that we have to make sure those people are not doing, we have two things we have to do. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and with all of our minds. And we're supposed to love our neighbors. That's it. That is the cost of the yoke. That is the burden of discipleship. And that burden is light because of the risen and ascended Christ. And in the midst of our own fears and anxiety, God is present. Is that not good news? I offer it to you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.